0: Take your Bibles, let's go to Isaiah chapter six. Our text today is the entire chapter of this glorious section in the book of Isaiah. Just to set the scene, I'm gonna read the first five verses. In the year, That King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, "Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts." There are some chapters in the Bible that are incredibly impactful. This particular chapter is a very important and special one, not just in the canon of the Bible, but also in my life. In college, I was reading the book, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Some books you can remember exactly where you were sitting when you were reading them, they're that impactful. I remember exactly where I was. I was a junior in college. I was in a study lounge of our university. And I was in crisis. The book, The Holiness of God, is about Isaiah chapter 6, and it was a book that I needed. Sarah, my wife, and I, before we were married, we were dating in college, and we had just broken up. Candidly, our relationship had become so internally focused that I would describe it as idolatrous. By that I mean, the problem was that we needed each other more than we needed God. And our relationship deteriorated. You see, when you live your life entirely in light of what another person thinks of you, you put those kind of demands on them, you end up hating them. And sitting alone in this dorm room with a broken heart, I read the holiness of God. I was desperate, I was searching. And this particular chapter stunned me with the glory of God and how idolatrous my heart had become. The contrast between this vision and where I was broke me. Sproul writes that in an encounter, In the wee hours of a morning in a chapel in his college experience, the Lord summoned him and he met with the Lord. He writes this, I was in a posture of prayer, but I had nothing to say. I knelt there quietly, allowing the sense of the presence of a holy God to fill me. An icy chill started at the base of my spine and crept up my neck and fear swept over me. I fought the impulse to run from the foreboding presence that gripped me. Terror passed, but it soon followed by another wave. It was the flooding of my soul with unspeakable peace, a peace that brought instant rest and repose to my troubled spirit. I wanted to linger there, to say nothing, to do nothing, simply to bask in the presence of God. That moment was life-transforming. Something deep in my spirit was being settled once and for all. This moment, from this moment, there could be no turning back. I was alone with God, a holy God. That vision in Isaiah six changed me. It eventually changed my outlook on nearly everything. After several months, God restored my relationship with Sarah, actually gave us a new relationship centered on satisfaction with God. And getting the holiness of God and his glory in the right place Was life changing. That's what I hope happens for you today as you see what we have here in this chapter. Beholding creates becoming. What you see empowers who you are. And a vision of God's glory and receiving his grace can lead to a new level of freedom and living on mission. Isaiah 6 was a watershed moment for me. And when I think about this text and I think about what God did in my own soul and what I want him to do in your soul, the equation looks something like this. When you see glory and you get grace from God, there is a motivation to go and live on mission. In fact, I would argue that if you try and go without grace and glory, it won't work. But when you understand the glory of God and understand the power and the beauty of his grace, there's a freedom to live and serve and be everything God intends for you to be. So today we're going to unpack these three words: glory, grace, and go. This is the last message in Isaiah, taking a break in July, gonna be studying over the next four weeks the concept of Jesus and God being our shepherd from Psalm 23 and then we'll pick it back up Isaiah in the month of August so first the idea of glory verse one in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple so there is this glorious vision of who God is but there's a context in which Isaiah is living just like you you're singing songs, but you live in the real world. You see Isaiah 6, and yeah, you got to go to work tomorrow. Uzziah. In the year that King Uzziah died, this is more than just a historical date. This would be like saying, in our context, at the height of COVID-19 last year. More than a date, it's, it's an era with everything that's involved. Uzziah was a good king. He reigned for 52 years. Now, don't just hear that number, feel that number. That would be like having the same president beginning in 1969 until now. That kind of reign would create an era in a nation's history. And such was the rule of Uzziah, his Reign was marked by prosperity, by security, by all kinds of advancements, and also spiritual vitality. If you want to know the whole story, look at 2 Chronicles 26. Sadly, though, Uzziah, at the very last moment in his reign, makes a terrible decision. 2 Chronicles 26 tells us that when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction for he was unfaithful to the Lord and entered the temple to burn incense. For, for some reason, Uzziah's success got into his head and he thought it would be okay to go into the temple and usurp the authority of the priest and offer incense. And in a dramatic showdown, the high priest and 80 other priests confronted him in the temple and said to him, Uzziah, this is not your role. And when Uzziah got angry, leprosy broke out on his face and he lived out the remainder of his days in quarantine and he never went back to the temple again. Uzziah sets this vision in that moment. Additionally, he sets it in the context of this looming threat from Assyria. There's a new king ruling over Assyria. His name is Tiglath-Pileser III, And in 740 BC, he began a military campaign and began to conquer the little nations between Israel and Assyria. So there is a threat of a major superpower advancing towards Israel, and there is a king who failed in the final days. Isaiah goes into the temple. It may have been that he goes there for some sort of help. It may have been he went there because he was in crisis, but when he arrives, he sees a life-changing vision of God's glory. He describes it as, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. The imagery here is meant to communicate God's high and exalted and sovereign rule. Isaiah in this moment encounters the majesty of God. It's as if the curtain of his earthly existence is pulled back for a moment and he's given an opportunity to really see what's going on. When he says the train of his robe filled the temple, the idea is that the majesty and the glory of God is emanating from this throne and this train is touching the earth in the same way. Think of it like the train of a bride's wedding dress is a derivative of her radiance. When you see that train in a wedding, you don't remark about how beautiful the train was. (laughs) The train is connected to the dress, which is connected to the bride. So too, Isaiah is ushered into the presence of God and this train of God's glory fills the temple. The text tells us that above him stood the seraphim. These are angelic creatures who are the guardians of God's glory. Their name literally means burning ones. And think of this, with wings that cover the face and wings that cover the feet, they look like flames of fire standing above the throne of God. And as they fly... With two other wings, they call to one another back and forth one song that they sing over and over and over and over. It is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and this is the The music that is surrounding God's throne. This this is the statement that captures the essence of what God is like. One word, one statement, one character quality, holy. It means brightness. The word holy means unapproachableness. It means separateness. Holy means that God is not like human beings. Holy is the unique moral majesty of God. And it is why this vision is so glorious. It is because of the word holy. The holiness of God is the perfection, the sinlessness, the purity of who God is. Holy is what makes God amazing, powerful, other, distant, and dangerous. Holy is the defining characteristic of God. This is why the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy. This threefold repetition is designed to elevate the importance of this description. According to R.C. Sproul, this is the only character quality of God that is repeated three times like this. Nowhere in the Bible is God called love, 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 or mercy, 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 or justice, justice, justice. No, only holy receives this kind of emphasis, and for good reason. Isaiah says that he sees the Lord high and lifted up. These seraphim declare God's holiness and then say the whole earth is full of his glory." So here, it's designed to communicate the scope of how big God's glory is, that everything in the created world is designed to reflect the glory of God's holiness. Church, this is the purpose of all of creation. And here is Isaiah confronted with the most important question that any human being can ask. He sees God, and the question is in this text, what is God like Last week we talked about big problems need a big God. Well, a big God doesn't matter if you don't know what he's like. To say God's big but you don't know what that bigness means is to negate the essence of what your hope could be in that God. A big God conquers big problems because this God is so holy. Isaiah sees the glory of God as expressed in what it means for God to be Holy, and so we see holy glory in this text. This is the why behind the what. Why did God create the world? Holy glory. Why is sin so bad? Holy glory. Why did Jesus come and die? Holy glory. Why were the disciples stunned with what they saw Jesus do? Holy glory. John says, He came to the earth and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. What motivates obedience? Holy glory. And what will be the experience in the new heaven and the new earth? Holy glory. So you need to know that the vision that Isaiah sees here will become the whole basis of his earthly ministry and the singular motivation, the fire inside the belly of this prophet is the holy glory of the living God. And when he saw him, he was changed forever. And I'm telling you, in that dorm room as a junior in the college, that is what I saw. For some Christians you're a follower of Jesus, the most pressing need in your life right now is not a vacation, as important as rest is. The most pressing need in your life is not trying to figure out everything that's going on inside of your soul. And there's a lot of stuff going on in all of our souls right now, as important as that is. You may find yourself dull and weary and disillusioned and downcast. Rest will help. Talking to a friend or, or counselor will be beneficial. But I would suggest that for some of us, what we need to be reminded of is if big problems can be conquered by a big God, then what in the world is this big God like? And Isaiah says, he is holy, holy. Holy. If you're not yet a Christian, you need to know, friend, that the problem with us human beings is that we crave glory and we pursue it in all the wrong places. We we, we exchange the glory of God for our own glory and it, it looks like being so worried what other people think of us. We have to be liked, why? Because we want glory. We, we spend money on things, why? Because we like what those things say about us. We seek after pleasure, why? Because we want to be happy. We seek after autonomy, why? Because we want to rule our own lives and the message of the Bible is that this doesn't work because there is no one else who is holy, holy, holy. There is nothing else that has this kind of glory. And when you understand that this is what God is like, it changes everything. So, glory, look what happens next. We see grace. Verse four: The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So notice thresholds and smoke. What are thresholds? Thresholds are the things you walk into. What does smoke do? It, it obscures the vision. So the idea is that the very access to the holy God is being hindered, preventing Isaiah from seeing and preventing from anyone else from entering. And everything about this scene is designed to create a sense of awe, even. Good fear, Isaiah is witnessing here something otherworldly, something mind-blowing, something heart-breaking. He understood what he saw. He saw a holy, holy, holy God, and by understanding that, he also felt the dissonance between the holy glory of God and his own sinfulness. He was fearful. He was broken. Verse five. I said. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah expresses here emotional despair regarding the fearful condition of who he is in light of who God is. He says, I am lost. The word means ruined or silenced, meaning there's nothing that Isaiah can say. Either he's not qualified to speak, either there's no defense, or this glory is so overwhelming that he is aware fundamentally of his unworthiness he's a man of unclean lips he he knows his own heart he knows who he is but that's not all isaiah is not only broken over his own disparity from who he is in light of who God is, but he also knows where he lives. And this is what Isaiah does over and over, is that he identifies what's wrong with me and what's wrong with the culture in which I live, that the problem of the rebellion against God is not just individual, it is corporate. And so he says, I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Isaiah knows that not only is he in trouble, but the whole nation is in trouble because of what Isaiah sees. Something glorious then happens next. Out of Isaiah's plea, verse 6, here comes grace. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So a seraphim flies to the place where sacrifices are made, to the altar the place where sin was atoned for. He takes a burning coal off of that altar and brings it to Isaiah and touches his mouth with it. And Isaiah is now coming face to face with his confession and his cleansing. The seraphim places the coal on the very place that he makes his confession. And the angel says to him, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. Notice that the entire act of cleansing is something that God does. Isaiah didn't earn it. Isaiah didn't do it. There's no sacrifice. There's no promise of change. The angel comes to him in a moment of unmerited divine favor. This is the unbelievable graciousness of a holy God who he's like this, we're like that, and yet he comes to us to offer us cleansing. R.C. Sproul writes this, In this divine act of cleansing, Isaiah experiences a forgiveness that went beyond the purification of his lips. He was cleansed throughout, forgiven to the core, but not without the awful pain of repentance. He was mourning for his sin, overcome with moral grief, and God sent an angel to heal him. In a moment, the disintegrated prophet was whole again. His mouth was purged. He was clean. Can I just remind you that this is what the grace of God is all about? It is that God in his grace comes to people and shows us what what he is like and what we are like so we can turn and put our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Last week we had phenomenal time of worship in the baptismal service 12 people baptized, and by the way, I'm praying that in the month of August we'll have at least double that. So if you're not baptized yet, we'd love to have you join people in taking the first step of baptism and profession of your faith. But this is Rachel. And Rachel, in her testimony, told us in the first service last week that it was in a particular Sunday morning worship service where. The light bulb came on and she understood what it was to be a sinner and to need a relationship with Jesus. She understood who God is and she embraced her condition as an unreconciled sinner. And God brought forgiveness to her through the person of Jesus. That's God's grace. And my hope in prayer is that there are some of you today that this will be the day. When you see God for who He is, you understand who you are, and you say, Jesus, will you help me? You need to know that God doesn't help those who help themselves, God helps those who are sick of themselves. God helps those who are sick of themselves, who are tired of themselves, who are undone by themselves, and turn to Jesus. And when that happens, he extends God's grace to them. So glory, grace, here's the last one, now go. The rest of the chapter is about Isaiah's mission. The whole book is informed by this vision. This is why Isaiah keeps declaring God's word to God's people. It's the same kind of reality that Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 28 when he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What's he saying? I'm in charge, I'm alive. They tried to kill me. I conquered the grave. I am the Son of God. And so then, what does he tell the disciples? Go and make disciples of all nations. In Isaiah, this mission or commission starts with a question that emanates from the throne. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah, so enamored with the glory of God and the grace that has come to him, says, here am I, send me. Here we find the beauty of when glory and grace combine, you can't help yourself. This is why it was much easier to share the gospel after you immediately became a Christian. Because the glory and grace were so hot in your soul, you didn't give a rip what anybody thought of you. All you knew is, I was a, I'm a sinner and I met Jesus, and this is gonna be socially awkward, but I'm gonna tell you about it. I know we don't know each other, but I found forgiveness. And then somehow over time, we become so accustomed to that reality and we begin to teach one another that that's just what new Christians do. No. That's what happens when you get too far removed from a vision of who God is. Isaiah volunteers He knew nothing of the mission, nothing of the outcome, nothing of the challenges. All he knew was this. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. His sin was purged. And Isaiah volunteers. I will go. Send me. And then here's his mission. God says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Note that. Isaiah's vision of God and his receiving of grace doesn't lead to what you and I would normally describe in our humanity as a very successful ministry. Instead, Isaiah's prophetic role will not be marked by widespread national humility or conviction or change. No, the the audience instead and the calling that Isaiah receives is gonna be marked by dull hearts, heavy ears, blind eyes, Isaiah is going to be an instrument of divine judgment through his prophetic ministry. Now, the people will eventually change. God will have his way with them. They will return. They will have hearts turned back to him. But Isaiah is never going to see this happen. Understanding the nature of this calling, Isaiah then laments, he says in verse 11, How long, O Lord? Like a week? How long will I have this ministry? Isaiah isn't questioning God's decision. He's wrestling with the weightiness of this. And God replies, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth of it remain, it will be burned again like a terabeth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The people of God are about to experience divine discipline and in order for that to happen, God needs a worldly nation like Assyria and Babylon and he also needs a prophet like Isaiah. He needs a spokesman who will warn God's people, and Isaiah is going to be the instrument through which God will deliver a very important message to his people, but they will not listen to him during his lifetime. And the rest of the book of Isaiah charts the course and records the words that he says in fulfillment of that very mission. The people didn't listen. Divine discipline came, and Isaiah never saw the people of God turn. But here's the thing. His mission was not primarily about the outcome with the people. His mission was primarily about the vision that he saw from God and what it meant to live in light of that vision. Isaiah's ministry wasn't fueled by the results he desperately longed for, it was fueled by the vision of the glory and the grace of God. That's what gripped him. You see, glory and grace empower people to go and do hard things. When you know what God is like and when you've been touched by his grace, you have deeply grounded hope. I was reading an article about Carl F.H. Henry. Matthew Hall writes this, Better than most, Carl Henry understood that even in the darkest of times, the gospel tells us that hope, I'd love this, is our original factory setting. We labor for truth, advocate for justice, suffer persecution for righteousness, but we do it all with a hopefulness that only makes sense because of the promises secured by a resurrected Christ who is ruling over the cosmos right now. How do you serve hard people? How do you love in difficult circumstances? By returning to the original factory setting which is the combination of both glory and grace. Carl Henry wrote this, evangelicalism can view the future with sober optimism grounded not only in the assurance of the ultimate triumph of righteousness, but also in the conviction that divine redemption can be a potent factor in any age. What does he mean? He means that no matter what season of life you live in, the glory of God and the grace of God always compel you to go for the glory of God. So here are my questions. Is hope your original factory setting? How does God's glory and his grace empower hope in your whole heart today? Are you marked by that Carl F.H. Henry sober optimism in the midst of challenges and hardships? Is it possible that little idols have crept in and they're surfacing such that even Isaiah 6 helps you to see, why am I trying to get my satisfaction on all these other things? This is what I live for. This is what's glorious. This is what's worth really serving people through. This is what my heart was rescued to see. This is the glory of God that I love. What mission has he called you to? What hard thing has he asked you to participate in? And how do you find sustaining grace like Isaiah in the middle of all of that? It is by understanding the equation that when you see God's glory and receive his grace, you're motivated and empowered to go and live on mission. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne high and lifted up. Jesus, we pray that this vision, this glorified picture of the holiness of God would serve as a motivator for us to follow you in the moment when life is hard and painful and challenging. Thank you that this motivates us to be serious in our walk with you, to follow you through difficulties and to find perseverance because of what we see. So Lord, strengthen us through this text today. Conquer the idols that would persuade us to try and live in another manner and make us a people who see your glory. Even now, remind us, capture us, or renew us so that we could have the hope that we need in order to faithfully follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.